0: I hope that everybody had a great Easter and uh, that, you know, your faith was refreshed as you just kind of contemplated the implications of uh, Easter Sunday on your own uh, personal life. Uh, Really, uh, the gifts that God has given to us are beyond, you know, even our imagination. You might have noticed that the uh, scripture reading this morning that Mike read for us from uh, the book of Hebrews is a passage of scripture, a section where uh, Moses and Jesus are compared to each other. And it's a really interesting uh, passage of scripture. Uh, Hebrews is written to the Jewish people. Uh, nobody's exactly sure who wrote it. But uh, Moses and Jesus are compared there. Moses is the giver, you know, of the first covenant, the Ten Commandments, in the Old Testament. And Jesus is the giver of the new covenant, Um the gospel in the New Testament, and uh, the law, you know, came from God at Mount Sinai, and the gospel came from Jesus, from God through Jesus on Mount Zion, and in uh, John chapter 1 and verse 17, uh, John sort of summarizes all of this and says, you know, the law was given to us through Moses, but grace and truth come to us through Jesus. So it's a great passage of scripture just comparing the two. I think it's fair to say that the Jewish people look to Moses in the same way that we as Christians look to Jesus. He's our savior. And uh, still today, uh, people are, Jewish people in particular, are counting on Moses, you know, to uh, be their savior. And so when the Israelites, you might remember, when the Israelites first heard from Moses, uh, back in Exodus chapter 19, and in verse 8, uh, they responded uh, like this. They said this when they first heard from Moses. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. I mean, it sounds like a wedding to me. Like, you know, I do, I will. Like we list the vows and people commit to it. And uh, But I've had the privilege of being with people, you know, five, six, seven years after that wedding day. And uh, sometimes the words where we say, I do you know, all of a sudden we forget that we said, I will, or I do. And, uh, you know, we start struggling with uh, actually doing uh, what we said we would do. And that's similar to what happens to the people of Israel. Uh, So God, you know, told the people to get ready. And uh, in uh, uh, verse 9, chapter 19, verse 9, said, the Lord said to Moses, uh, I'm going to come to you in the thick of the cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may believe you forever. Uh, Here's God telling Moses, you know, I'm going to speak through you. I'm going to speak to the people directly. And uh, I want people to understand, you know, that they can trust you and believe in you forever. Moses to such a degree, but. Uh, The next chapter, God begins to speak, and, you know, uh, the people can't take it. To hear from God directly is more than the people can handle. So in chapter 20, where we have the Ten Commandments, uh, the 18th and 19th verses, uh, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And Moses said, Uh, And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us. We're going to die. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid for God has come to test you uh, that the fear of him may be before you so that you may not sin. And so when God actually does speak to the people directly, they can't take it. It's too much. It's overwhelming and so forth. And so Moses becomes sort of a mediator. Um, verse 21, the people stood far off while Moses drew near uh, to the thick darkness where God was. And so now uh, Moses kind of takes on a different role, sort of a mediator. And uh, God continues to talk to Moses. Uh, you can read chapters here, three or four chapters. Uh, he keeps uh, sharing uh, with Moses more uh, of his thoughts uh, about uh, all kinds of things, um, If you just kind of skim through here, there's rules about slaves, there's rules about fighting, there's rules about payback, there's social justice rules, there's rules about partnership and Sabbath days and celebrations and so forth. And we finally get to uh, chapter 24 and verse 1. Uh, Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nabab and Abishu, And uh, 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone uh, will come into my presence and so forth. And so in uh, verse 3, Moses comes and he tells the people all the words of the Lord, all the rules and all the people answered with one voice. And they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Now, that's pretty amazing. If you ask, how did we get the first five books of the Bible? How in the world did we get? Genesis so that we know how we got here and where we all came from well God himself revealed it to Moses and Moses wrote it down don't forget Moses was raised by the Egyptians right went to the finest schools learned you know had the best education available and so forth knew how to write and so as God's revealing to him he's writing all of this down so that people like you and I can have this preserved for us straight from uh, the mouth of God. And so it says he rose early in the morning and built an altar and uh, he, you know, uh, got people ready to worship. And, so, and uh, Moses took uh, the blood that was in the basin from the sacrifices and so forth. And then he took the book of the covenant that he had written and he read it in hearing of the people in verse 7. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and so forth and sprinkled them. And uh, so far, so good. Sounds pretty good, right? The people sound pretty solid. Everybody's committed. Vows are, you know, made from God. If you do this, I'll do that. And and people are like, we'll do it. Uh, You can count on us and so forth. And then um, in verse 12, uh, the Lord said to Moses, I want you to come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law, the Ten Commandments, which I have written for the people's instruction. So you remember God actually wrote, you know, on the tablets of stone, and uh, God's calling Moses to come and get the the two tablets written on the front and the back. And uh, so Moses entered the cloud, went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, a little less than six weeks. Moses is away up on the mountain, okay? And so... Um on the way back, uh, God comes and in Exodus chapter 31, uh, after he's talking to Moses, he's giving him more rules, more laws, more uh, especially about worship, how to worship God, all kinds of particulars about the tabernacle and, and so forth, exactly as God desires. And he gets sort of to the end of uh, that time. And the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 31 and verse 12, um, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say this above all above all you shall keep my Sabbaths for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I the Lord sanctify you you shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you everyone who profanes the Sabbath will be put to death. So here we have all these, you know, rules and commandments and so forth. We get all the way to the end of what God wants to say. And the one thing he emphasizes is keep the Sabbath. And a couple of things here. He says, first of all, you know, keep the Sabbath. This will be a sign between us. If you were to kind of uh, take this whole relationship between God and the Israelites and put it in marriage language, which we've done a little bit along the way, Um, you would uh, see that the Sabbath was almost like wearing a wedding ring. This is going to be a sign. This ring is a sign to anybody who cares. You know, I'm married, right? I'm committed. I'm devoted. And and we wear a wedding ring. It's a sign of our um, reality and, and what we want people to know about us. And so God says, I want the rest of the world to understand that you're my people by keeping the Sabbath every Saturday Uh, all your neighbors are going to watch. You're going to get up. You're going to take your kids. You're going to go to the synagogue, you know, and you're going to instruct them in my laws. And so think of it almost as a sign. I wonder if the same thing can't just be applied to Sunday worship and Christians in the middle of, uh, you know, all of this in the Old Testament was written for our instruction and we can draw some parallels from it. And so, you know, our neighbors kind of are watching us and what we do. And it's kind of a sign like, hey, I'm devoted to Christianity, you know, and and then another thing that uh, I noticed that God is saying to Moses here to tell the people, He said, um, "You're going to do this throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I'm in the process of changing you. To sanctify, I think, is pretty much the same thing as to disciple." You know, we talk about discipling people, and what are we really talking about when, you know, God's whole plan is to make us more like Jesus, right? I mean, that's what he's out to do. He's out to change us. If we're going to become like Jesus, we're going to be changed, and we we have this great motto in this church, you know, that the gospel changes everything about us, right? And so... Uh, God's saying to the Jewish people, the Israelites, you know, I want you to keep on the Sabbath on a regular basis because I'm in the process of sanctifying you. I'm in the process of changing you from what you were into my people, my children. I'm in the process of influencing you with my truth and my thoughts and my worldview, you know, and uh, my eternal perspective and so forth. And so uh, I think it's the same thing as uh, discipling. And so that was one thing. Uh, that God wanted them to do was to keep the Sabbath, and another thing that uh, evolved in time um, was the uh, Shema. The Shema was in Deuteronomy uh, 6, and verse 4 is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. People used to say that at least twice a day. They would repeat that to themselves. They would just by repetition remind themselves of who they are, An awful lot of what God said when he had Moses on the mountain and so forth, if you read through it, has to do with remembering and reminding people of who they are as God's children because they had spent 400 years, generations, being not God's kids, and now all of a sudden they are God's people and uh, his treasured possession, he calls them, And uh, so it's easy to forget, you know, who am I? And the same thing is true with us Christians. It's why we celebrate communion, right? We have to remember, hey, I'm a person bought by the precious blood of God on the cross of Calvary. I matter. I'm going to be around for eternity. God loves me. I'm different than the rest of the world. I'm the object of God's love and God's salvation and and so on. And so one of the ways that the Israelites would remind themselves, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was called the Shema. They would repeat it. And uh, eventually it got to be hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. Like the Lord is one changed to the Lord alone, uh, emphasizing the fact that there is only one God and his exclusivity. And um, these, this Shema, the, the Lord our God is one, uh, was actually written on a tiny, tiny little scroll, a piece of calfskin uh, that was rolled up and uh, that was actually put in a, a leather box. You may have seen Orthodox Jewish people. They sometimes wear a leather, little leather box right on their forehead uh, with a string around the back to tie it or an elastic kind of a thing to hold it there, or they'll wear it on their forearm or both. And uh, it comes right from this passage, um, verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals between your eyes. You shall, uh, you know, write them on the doorposts of your house and so forth. In other words, God was saying, listen, you know, uh, I want you to keep my word right on the front of your mind like I want you to be God-first people, as we would say, and uh, I want you to keep that word of God foremost on your mind and on your arms so that every action that you take, you think, first, what would God do, you know, and how would God have me respond in this situation with whatever actions I'm contemplating? And so Orthodox Jewish people to this day, you will see those. They're called phylacteries, and they're just a little leather box, you know, that's worn on their wrist or worn on their forehead coming from this passage, but it's designed to remind us that God's word needs to be at the forefront of our mind. It's designed to remind us who we really are uh, because people forget. And uh, I think it's why God also designed communion is so that we would never forget what God has done for us. And so, again, these are the people, the Israelites, right, who said, listen, anything God says, we will do it. We will be obedient. And that's the way the law works. God said, you follow this, and I'll do this for you, I'll bless you. You don't follow this, I'll withdraw my blessing from you, okay? So these are the people, that's the setup, and here we are in um, Exodus chapter 32. Let me just read for you what happens here. You know this, but uh, we need to talk about it. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, remember he was up there 40 days, a little less than six weeks, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, that's Moses' brother who was there to help him, he's kind of his uh, sidekick, and uh, said to Aaron, uh, up make us small g gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. We don't know what's become of him. And so Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, first chance, right, that we get we're going to blow off the first commandment, right? Don't have any small G gods before me. Very first chance the people get. uh, I think um, when you read this story in in its context, you have to search long and hard in the Bible to find another story that I think um, reveals the sinfulness and the fickleness and the prone-to-wander nature of people any more painfully than the story of the golden calf. Maybe the story of Adam and Eve rivals it. Maybe, uh, you know, the story of the Jewish people shouting, crucify him, crucify him on Good Friday, rivals this story. But I think you have to look long and hard to find a story, you know, and you try to put yourself into these people's shoes and try to wonder, you know, I mean, it's only 40 days, but while Moses is standing in the very presence of God at the top of the mountain, the people have turned back to the way they were before they ever encountered God. Their heads and their hearts are back in Egypt, and uh, the very first chance they get, they go against the first commandment. In fact, uh, as you read this, they go against all three of the first uh, The first three commandments are all broken. And again, if you cast this whole relationship with God uh, in marriage language, God's treasured possession, Uh, is committing spiritual adultery uh, as God is revealing himself to Moses on the top of the mountain. And such is the propensity to sin. And such is the inadequateness of the law to stop it. It's apostasy, right? Uh, And Aaron goes right along with it. In fact, Aaron leads it. He gets into it with the people and just goes right along with what's going on. Apostasy The word apostasy is rebellion and uh, it really is the deliberate falling away of a professed position or commitment. It's a deliberate, apostasy is a deliberate change of your mind to move away from what you're committed to. In the um, New Testament, in um, Thessalonians, The Apostle Paul writes to this church in the New Testament because the church was confused about end time events. You know, some people thought that the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, by the way, is the worst day that will ever happen on the planet. And uh, it's always a day of judgment. It's always bad news. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is a horrible day. It's all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament. And these people at Thessalonica thought that the day of the Lord had already come, and so Paul writes this letter to really, uh, the two letters, to help them uh, get away from the confusion, and in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, he says, let nobody deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion, unless the apostasy comes first. The day of the Lord, the judgment of God on the world will not come unless the apostasy, the rebellion, comes first and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. All this to just say that at some point in the future, there's going to be this massive falling away of professing Christians. There's a difference between professing and possessing, right? Uh, There's many people who profess to be Christians, but when they come right up against the hard times and the decisions that need to be made in order to be faithful to the Lord, there's this uh, capitulation or this rebellion or this deliberate decision to say, I'm not going to I'm not going to wear the phylactery. I'm not going to put God's word first. I'm going to, you know, do what the rest of the crowd is doing and so forth. And so the Bible is warning us that there is a day coming. Now, people debate today, are we in that yet? You know, are there, you know, if you look at church attendance, for example, over the years and see where we're at today, post-COVID, you know, is this all part of what uh, God is trying to reveal to us about what's going to come in the future? But I'm just saying that, you know, the the people rebelling and creating um, a, a calf, a golden calf, um, is a prelude to a period of time when the church will likewise just uh, apostatize or rebel uh, against their commitment uh, to Christ. And I, again, I, there are other passages of scripture, but the Bible warns us about this, and um, again, it's It's what happened with the golden calf that that leaves us with a lesson about the future that we will be tempted to apostatize or to rebel or to reject. And there's a lot of speculation as to how that would come about and so forth. Anyway, I think wherever there's life, there's change. Wherever there's change, there's loss. And wherever there's loss, there's pain. This church, about a year ago, went through a tremendous change, right? Suffered a terrible loss and experienced pain on many different levels, experienced uh, different kinds of pain. And so the question becomes, well, what do we do with our pain? What do we do? You know, the Israelites, Moses was up on the mountain and gone. They didn't know what happened to him. And so they started to feel insecure, What's going to happen to us? Where are we going to go? What are we going to do now? Who's here to lead us? And, and and so on and so forth. And there's some parallels there. So it seems to me like when life changes and we experience loss and the loss creates pain, uh, we do one of two things. We either grow in our faith and we turn to the Lord more and we discover that the Lord himself is, in fact, able to satisfy us at a deeper level than we ever thought before. It's kind of like James. You remember James, uh, the Lord's (laughs) half-brother, James, he says in the first chapter, uh, he says, count it all joy when you have these kind of trials. I always thought as a kid, I thought, this guy, he he doesn't understand life. Count it all joy when you have all these different kinds of trials and troubles coming your way. And you're like, why? And James goes on to say, because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Because the testing of your faith, when you are challenged in your faith, and uh, it produces a, a sturdiness, a steadfastness, a, a decision, an anti-apostasizing decision that says, you know, I'm sticking with the Lord. He's all that I can count on, and uh, I'm going to hold on to him uh, day in and day out and so forth. If we do that, we grow, and we become steadfast in our faith. If we don't do that, we turn to something else, that will help us deal with our pain. We look for a small G God. We build a golden calf, you know, Uh, and we try to hold on to someone or something that we think can maybe take God's place for us. And the Bible says that when we turn away from our creator, we always turn to something in the creation. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, you know, if you stop worshiping the creator, you don't stop worshiping. You start worshiping anything. You don't worship nothing, you worship anything if you stop worshiping the creator. And it's usually something from, you know, the creation. And so I think a lot of addictions start right here. If you sit down and listen to people as to why they're stuck and the addiction they're in, uh, usually it starts with some kind of really painful experience in life. And they either had to choose God to turn to or they chose something else. Um, A lot of times self-reliance Uh, starts here, you know, I'm just not going to let myself ever be hurt like that again, and so I'm not going to love anybody anymore, and so forth, or we turn to materialism, you know, uh, we love things and hate people instead of the other way around, because why, because, well, material things can't bite us as bad as people, and so forth, narcissism, uh, we try to power or control, and so there's a whole array of small g gods, but when we do turn to God, right, and when we really say, God, you You are all I have, and we turn to him. You know what you discover? That God is an end in himself. God is an end in himself. So often we Christians, and I put myself at the head of the list, we Christians think of God as a means to an end. And we talk to God, and we pray to God, and we're like, God, you know, I'm sick. You could heal me. Please heal me, and then I'll be happy, you know? God, I'm single, you could find me a spouse, please bring me a spouse, then I'll be happy. You're a means to my end. And my end thinks that I can be satisfied with all these different kinds of things. God, I'm out of a job, I need a job. You're God, you could, you know, you're a means to an end. Get me a job and I'll be happy, you know, and I'll be able to do whatever and so forth. And a lot of times God says no to those prayers. You ever experience that? I mean, God just doesn't answer those prayers. And I think when he does that, he's saying, listen, I'm what you desire. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am your life. And you will find in me satisfaction in spite of the circumstances that go on around your life. Now, yes, I am God, and I do love you, and I can fix those things, and I love to do those things for you. But what I'm really trying to help you discover is that I'm all you need. I'm God. And you're going to be with me for eternity. And I want you to find your satisfaction, uh, not in everything else, but in me. And I am an end in myself. And I want you to know me both as a father. I want you to come to the point where you call me dad, Abba, father. And I want you to know me as a friend, like Moses, face to face. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends, you know. The Israelites without Moses felt insecure, and instead of trusting God more, they wanted something tangible. I'm so thankful that you as a church, you know, turned to God and found God to be deeper perhaps than you ever thought before, and uh, be thankful that we hung in there, you know, and uh, God met us, and God is all we need, and if we have him, uh, we're in good shape. But the Israelites wanted something concrete, you know, to connect with the transcendent God. I would suggest to you that the pagan worldview that they had picked up in Egypt had influenced their thinking. And um, besides that, you know, it was God who led them out of Egypt, not Moses. And they had put too much uh, emphasis on Moses and not enough on what God was doing. And so uh, they took the most valuable thing they had, gold, And Aaron fashioned it into a calf, no doubt a young bull, which was worshipped in Egypt as a symbol of power. And uh, they violated the first three commands that God had given. And uh, I have to tell you, God goes ballistic. God's like, that's it, I've had it. I'm done with these people. I mean, it's really uh, Exodus 32, verse uh, 7 and 8. The Lord said to Moses, right? Moses up on the mountain. God's talking to him. The Lord says to Moses, go down to your people. <laughs> up until this point, they're my people, right? God is like, these are my people, my treasured possession, right? And now he's like, go down to your people. You ever have this in your house? My wife would say to me. My kids would mess up. You know, I'd be like, your daughter, you know, your son, Right? It used to be ours, our son and our daughter. When they're doing something good, then it's ours. But when it's bad, it's your kid, you know, kind of thing. And so uh, that's what God does to Moses. And then uh, look what he says. He says, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now, the word corrupted is a very serious, very heavy word. It's the same word that God used in Genesis chapter 6 when he destroyed the whole earth with a flood. With, in Noah's day, God came and said, the whole world has become corrupted. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm done with it. And saved Noah and his family, and that was it. And uh, so the same thing here, Look, the next verse. Uh, God's talking. He says, the people have turned aside quickly... Out of the way that I commanded them, they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Wow. God's ticked. So listen to this. And uh, the Lord said to Moses, verse nine, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people, stubborn group of people. Now, therefore, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you, Moses. I'm just going to start all over again. I'm going to wipe these people out like I wiped out the rest of the people in Noah's flood, and I'm going to start over again. And uh, Moses, you're going to be the new Abraham. We're just going to start all over again. We're just going to chalk this up to a loss and we'll be done and we'll move on. Well, Moses, verse 11, Moses prays, right? It goes back to the Lord. And Moses implored the Lord as God and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? (laughs) You're not dumping this on me, right? These are your people, your people. This is your daughter, your son, you know. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Now, here's Moses reasoning with God in prayer, right? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did God bring those people out only to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Moses praying to God, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And then he says, remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring like the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised them, I will give to your offspring and they will inherit forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. God changed his mind as a result of Moses' prayer. You notice how Moses prayed? He quoted God back to Himself, He quoted God's word. This is a great way to pray. We're talking about being mentored by Moses. One of the great ways to pray is to take God's word, read it, and when you come up against something and uh, the Holy Spirit just gives you a nudge about it or something, talk to God and use that, God, God, didn't you say, didn't I do, what am I missing? You you said, you said, you said, and uh, you did, you did, and so forth. It's a great way to pray is to just quote scripture back to God. And that's what Moses does here. And so uh, Moses goes down the mountain, right? He does what God says. He's carrying the two tablets that have uh, the 10 commandments written on them, front and back. The Bible goes out of its way to make sure we understand that God's the one, his finger wrote those commandments on the uh, tablets. And in uh, verse 19, Moses uh, uh, catches a glimpse of the people. As soon as he came near the camp, And saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Takes the two tablets of the Ten Commandments and uh, throws them. Now, I don't think this is just a fit of rage uh, that Moses has. I think this means that the deal is off. I think it means that the covenant is broken. I think it means that God is saying, You didn't live up to your side. The deal is off. And uh, the covenant was broken. Uh, If you uh, fast forward to um, Jeremiah's day, and, uh, you know, this goes hundreds of years forward, but it's looking back on this particular period of time. And in Jeremiah chapter uh, 7, and uh, starting at uh, verse 22, let me just read for you. Uh, For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I'll be your God. And you will be my people and walk in all the ways that I command you, uh, that it may be well for you. I'll make life work for you. But they did not obey or incline their ear. But they walked in their own counsel and in their own stubbornness of their own evil hearts. And they went backwards instead of forwards. They went spiritually backwards instead of forwards. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they're not going to listen to you. You shall call to them, but they're not going to answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept the discipline. Uh, Truth has perished. It's cut off from their lips. So this is God looking back and over the generations, you know, up until Jeremiah's day. And then Jeremiah sort of summarizes all of this. And uh, God says this. He says, my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And number two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They've forsaken me, big G God, and they've given themselves to small G gods, which cannot deliver but that's what they have done. These two things God says they have done. And so uh, Moses back on the mountain in um, Exodus 32 burns the idol, takes the golden calf and burns it. Uh, most people surmise from that that it was probably some kind of wooden structure overlaid with gold. But you can imagine this calf and Moses just, you know, taking the whole thing, building a hot fire, and then all the people just watching it melt, right? Right? and um, the, the whole thing just burns up, and, uh, and then um, uh, it demonstrates that the idol is absolutely perilous to save itself, let alone save anybody else, and then Moses waits for the whole thing to burn, and he takes the ashes, and he puts them in the water supply, uh, the only water that they have to drink, and the Bible says uh, he made them drink it. Let me read it for you, verse 20. He took the calf, that They had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water, and made the people drink it, made the people drink it and so uh, again, uh, I think you know this literally means that the people digested uh, the idol, and uh, they internalized what they had done, they had to take personal responsibility for it, and so forth. And the idol itself ended up as human waste. I mean, it's the ultimate of humility for what the people did. And then uh, Moses gets into Aaron's face, right? And uh, so Moses goes to Aaron, and uh, Moses asks his brother, he says, you know, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, Uh, they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. And for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron is like, you know, it's the people, you know, how they're given to evil. And they just said to me and yada, yada, yada. And uh, he says, you know, let, let, let any of you. So he says, well, I, I just said to them, let any of you who has gold take it off. And so they gave it to me and You know, I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. It's my favorite verse, right? It's just like, "Wow, I just threw it in the fire and out came this calf. And I want to say, you know, I want to say, Aaron, you got to be kidding me, right? But then I think, I wonder how many of my excuses sound like that to God. I bet you've made some excuses that sound like that to God, right? Just absolutely ridiculous, you know? and uh, a lie, and Aaron is just, you know, blaming others, you know, it's a lie, and uh, after some some of these, uh, afterwards, you know, uh, after he burns the idol, and after he confronts Aaron, and and so forth, some of these people just keep right on partying, and uh, they just want to keep going, and they keep rebelling, and uh, they are, in fact, stiff-necked people, verse 25 here, and 26, uh goes on. It says, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, the pe- I think a foot loose. I don't know why, but it just comes to my mind. You know, uh, Moses saw that the people had just broken loose. They had no restraints. They just did whatever they felt like doing. And uh, for Aaron had let them break loose and uh, to the derision of their enemies. I worry about America sometimes with our international enemies laughing at us at some of the things we're doing. Uh, these days and if it isn't uh, again part of the end time scenario and so forth but when Moses sees what's happening here he just he just says you know what I gotta call for the question here and the next thing Moses said is you know he stands in the gate you know and yells out who's on the Lord's side here who's really on God's side who is on the Lord's side Um, And that's what he says, when Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who's on the Lord's side, come to me. Now, uh, there's three groups of people, and this is how people respond to the law, right? It's kind of like how people respond to the resurrection that we talked about last week. If I can just explain this, I'll be done, I promise. Okay, so uh, who's on the Lord's side? That's a big question. It's still a legitimate question today, right? Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. So number one, the first group of people, all the sons of Levi gathered around him. All the sons of Levi. That was Moses' tribe, 12 tribes of Israel. Levi was one of the tribes. It was Moses' people. They all came around him, right? And Moses says to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor, And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Wow. Now, notice a couple things here. First of all, um, the first response is, I believe I'm on the Lord's side and I'm coming to stand with Moses. Second thing um, to notice here is that uh, your loyalty to your family, your loyalty to your tribe, your loyalty to your nation, is secondary to your loyalty to God. The primary identity of the people of God is that God is our father in heaven. And that all the other uh, parts of our identity as to who we really are are subsidiaries of the fact that I am a person whom God has uh, anointed and made into a treasured possession of his. I'm different than everybody else in the world. I'm called out to be different and so forth. The second group of people respond by saying, you know, I don't care what this God stuff is. I'm just going to party on. I'm having a blast here, you know, worshiping the golden calf and I'm half in the bag and I'm going to stay there and I'm just going to party. And those are the 3,000 dead people who respond by saying, yeah, right, you know. But then there's the majority of people. And uh, verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I'm gonna go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Atonement just means at one mint, at one, just the way it's spelled, just to be at one. It's the idea of reconciliation. Now sin has come between us, the people, and God, and it's separated us, and we're in trouble because now we're without God and without God's blessing." And I'm going to see if I can make atonement, if I can pull us back together. And so how are you going to do that, Moses? How are you going to make atonement? How are you going to do it? So look at this, verse 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin, and they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, if you will forgive your sin, I'm going to ask God to forgive on the basis of grace undeserved if you are willing to forgive their sin but if not Moses says please blot me out of your book that you have written where have you heard that before it's just like Jesus right Jesus comes into the world and says look save the people forgive their sins put it on me and Moses is saying same thing blot me out Paul said the same thing for the sake of the Jews. If I could just, you know, be wiped out in place of all my fellow brothers so that they could all be saved, you know. And Moses is saying the same thing. It's a prelude to Jesus. Oh, by the way, I forgot. Um, I found a list of 23 comparisons between Moses and Jesus. And I made some copies of it, put it on the table out there. Have you noticed the nice new tables out in the foyer? It's so welcoming when we came in. Anyway, and chairs, they're very comfortable. My suggestion is we put those in the front and take these pews and put them in the back there for those to get those people in here with us. Where were we? Moses says, look, blot me out so that the people could be saved. And you know what God says? Now, you have to die for your own sin, Moses. You're a murderer. Remember he killed the Egyptian when the Egyptian was beaten on the Hebrew and you know, and same thing to Paul. You got your own sins to die for. But then God says in Deuteronomy 18, says to Moses, you tell the people, I'm going to send somebody in the future who's going to be just like you, Moses. I'm going to send a prophet. And he's talking about Jesus. And he says, you tell the people, listen to him. Because he is going to go to the cross and he is going to do what Moses and Paul can't do. He's going to sacrifice himself in the place so that God can extend forgiveness to anybody that asks. Let's pray together. (coughs) Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for uh, Moses and being able to just uh, go through the Old Testament a little bit like this and see the parallels to our lives and to the church and uh, just to learn, Father, from what happened in the past so that we can be alert to the tendencies that we're prone to. And that we can see, Father, just uh, what you have done in Jesus and how superior Jesus and salvation is to Moses and the law. You even come right out in the Bible and say, by the law, nobody will ever be justified in your sight. That if there's a bridge to be built, it's not going to come from us to you, but it has to come from you to us. But that you did build that bridge in the person of Jesus. And we're so thankful. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.